0: Welcome back to the Modus Mirandi podcast. I'm your host, Thomas Ikara e. clark You can connect with me at Modus Mirandi on Twitter and Instagram to stay up to date on the latest episodes, submit questions, or provide feedback. I'd really appreciate it if you could share with one or two friends or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Cecily, how are you doing today? I'm
1: doing very, very well, enjoying the beautiful weather.
0: Yeah, this is the first time I've recorded a podcast outside, so it's a little bit of an experiment. Hopefully we don't have any like crazy interruptions, but (laughs) Honoured to
1: be making history on this podcast. Yes.
0: Um, Would you mind just saying a few words about yourself and doing a brief self-introduction?
1: Yes. So I am Cecily. I know Thomas from Princeton, although I graduated 2019, so snuck out right before the pandemic hit. I'm um, current. I'm from Cambridge. I'm currently in Cambridge, but I'm getting ready to go to New York next year and do a master's in education
0: and Very philosophy. Exciting. Oh, and philosophy. Yeah, Very exciting. Joint honours, yeah. Cool. Well, um, there's a lot of places we could start, but one thing we were discussing offline is perhaps starting with our mutual experience in the world of educating those younger than us, uh, you you were teaching in New York. I don't know why I said it like that. That's a weird way of saying teaching. Okay, I, I was a teacher for two years. I taught high school age kids.
1: You were an educator uh, of those younger uh, than yes, you. Yes, slightly two younger years. than you. Yeah. You
0: were an educator of those even more younger than you.
1: Very true. Um, so yeah. yeah,
0: could you just talk briefly about that? And I know it was interrupted by COVID somewhat, so that I'm sure changed things a bit. Yeah, but.
1: well, it was it was interrupted in as much as it was moved online, um, which was a surreal experience because. I was teaching kindergarten first grade. It was a hybrid class because it was a brand new school, so fourteen kids, two teachers, I got a lot of attention. Um, but yeah, so quick explanation of the school. It was like a new brand new school it was in its second year, um, so I kept being described as a startup environment um, which I think often is code for, like, totally shambolic. <laughs> 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 There's no structure. You have to make do with what you've got. Anyway, um, as in literally my first week of the school was building the tables that we would then have in the classroom. Like so IKEA,
0: like, putting them yeah, together. Yeah, yeah, like, <laughs> putting
1: them together. Um, trying to put them together. Um, anyway, but it was really... Cu- I, the reason why I was drawn to the school in the first place was it was a music-oriented one, so it wasn't like a conservatoire, you have to audition to get in, but they tried to integrate music education from the very beginning and across all classes, basically. Yeah. Which is fun for me, because it was an excuse. Cool. I mean... Yeah, because you did,
0: you did acapella at well, that's the funny it. thing,
1: because, like, any kindergarten teacher, I think, spends... Whatever school they're in spends more than half their day singing, <laughs> because <laughs> it's, like, the way that we, you communicate with kids at that age. Um, but I think that what I quite liked about this was it was very... So it was, it was an offshoot of an, actual music, of an actual music school. And there's a lot of studies. Um, and, like, across the world, lots of different education systems actually do integrate and appreciate music mm-hmm. as a proper... Not as a separate thing, but, like, as integral to cognitive development, especially at yeah. that early stage. And I, I just really respected that. And I thought it was... I don't know, doesn't really get its fair due, yeah. <laughs> at least in the British education system.
0: Interesting. Okay, yeah. cool. And then, so, when you had to go online for COVID, I mean, how yeah. did that change the experience? Well,
1: I mean, <laughs> it, it's funny, because it, teachers rightly complained a lot about that transition, but the real people who suffered were the parents, who, I mean, not the children, but the parents, because they had to try and cope with yeah. having jobs, while also <laughs> making sure that, because it was so ridiculous. I mean, they're five and six-year-olds, five and... Six year olds, and you put them in front of an iPad screen and they just run away. They're yeah. just like running around the, like running around their homes. Right, um, All the
0: management part of it is now on the parents.
1: Yeah, I know. Exactly. Do I
0: all was, the kids even have devices at home? Well, like, do I
1: know. Well, that's the thing. Cause I was at a, like a fee paying school. So they did.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but definitely not true across the board. Um, so they all had devices and the kids were, it's so funny. We transitioned from having like a rule where you could only have a screen for 10 minutes a day two all day <laughs> all day yeah exactly um yeah but the transition wasn't easy i don't know because you must have taught on, online or you i did at, yeah okay. so my
0: second year we went online starting in march and then at first they told us it's going to be two weeks you know and then we'll yeah. come back and it'll be fine oh my goodness two they said two weeks of course no one knew at that point
1: i know well, um, this is the funny thing cause i remember because the way it worked for us was it hit right we were about to go into spring break and that's when everything just exactly, went crazy and, yeah um but i just remember having i mean i cringe when i look back on it but having a conversation with that my like the other teacher in the classroom about how you know can't wait to come back see you yeah. in a week i don't know it's just so
0: surreal yeah yeah i know i ended up yeah they, they they closed for two weeks and then it ended up being closed the rest of the year i never yeah. taught again so like my last day teaching was just some random random thursday in march
1: now imbued with
0: and then yeah poignancy exactly and then i i didn't step back you know step foot in my classroom again until june and then I just saw like everything left the where like exactly where it had. Uh, been, you
1: hadn't you know. left any like food. You didn't hear these horror <laughs> no, stories yeah, about yeah, no, like no, a banana that I, I found. It. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> um, but yeah. Wait, so you didn't teach online, or no, I did teach online. Oh, you did yeah, teach yeah, yeah, online. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, So the 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 March, April, May, and a bit of June were were all online. Um, yeah. So that was a kind of quite a difference. I mean, they were high school students, so like they already they all, they also all have iPads. Like it's an iPad school, so. Um, they were all used to technology and they could sort of adapt to that pretty yeah. easily. You know, pretty self directed. I could just say, okay, get this done by this date. And they would generally do it, I would make videos. I think most of them watched it if any of you are listening to this right now <laughs> yeah. maybe you got away with not watching my videos but shame on you <laughs> uh, but no i think most of them watched the videos that i made and yeah i mean it actually made less work for me because i taught like four sections of one class and two sections of another but now i just had to make like two videos and then and post you're them. done <laughs> and then, beautiful day and then i'd have office hours people could drop by and ask questions and then yeah it, it honestly was not bad on my end but i'm sure you know I i started to miss them just as like, you know, I started just to the miss casual yeah. yeah.
1: like yeah. the casual chats. Yeah, like the
0: sort of the personal element of it more than like, I adjusted pretty easily to the workload of doing things virtually, but I, I hmm. did start to really miss them. And well, I, what, yeah.
1: yeah, what I missed was the eavesdropping on the conversations that were had over the um, lunch table, which oh. at, as five-year-olds tends to be them, they've just discovered the knock knock jo- joke format and just like implanting words, but like they know the rhythm of the joke. But they don't understand that it's the content that's funny, not just the rhythm of it. <laughs> yeah. And so they would that's just be hilarious. like, nuck, nuck, I'm a car. You know, nuck, car who? <laughs> I don't know. And then just like some rat, like, because I'm a tree. And then, it's like, and then it erupts with laughter. I just thought it was so hilarious. That is
0: hilarious. Oh my Figuring
1: God. out social social norms. Um, what this is, because this probably wasn't relevant to you then, because if they're a bit older. But I remember thinking that the, 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 what was so disruptive about online education as well was... Um, like having the parents in the classroom and it made you as an educator feel kind of uncomfortable because we always treated the kids really really well that was never a problem but it's just kind of funny like disciplining somebody else's child in their own home yeah and um and disciplining it not in any aggressive way but just even being like you know
0: please stop talking like that (laughs) type of thing
1: and I just found the politics of that kind of
0: stressful but all the parents
1: were kind of understanding
0: yeah so was it all like synchronous like you actually had sessions and i guess yeah
1: yeah i mean it was a combination but we didn't do videos or anything like that they would just come on to a class um but then we would do smaller groups so we'd have like i mean they obviously had fewer hours a day um but we sort of had group stuff and then we would have like two people or one person like reading
0: lessons wow um
1: yeah
0: yeah Yeah. it must be just such a different like it's cool that how much people develop over the course of being in school and it's like you go from you know not being able to read I know so then, like you just give them instructions and they like do entire I know I know it um, is like amazing. honestly the teacher does less and less as you go as the students get older like I, I can't imagine doing like working with the youngest groups like it, it's just you know a lot more that the teacher I think has to be uh, aware of in terms of just like knowing the students knowing their needs whereas like I think at the higher levels it's like yeah you have to like worry about crafting like good prompts and like good you know projects and things and like, you know, giving feedback and that's all also important, but like, you know, they know how to like
1: be be. (laughs) (laughs) know how to be a person. Yeah. One thing that I thought was so interesting about teaching this early age, um, was also so I keep shifting the conversation away from education to like the politics of parent teacher dynamics and stuff. But it was kind of interesting because first of all children have absolutely no filter. And so they're very open about things that are happening at home. Sometimes sometimes they're also saying something but as an adult you understand yeah. the deeper meaning behind it um, you know because there are a couple of children whose parents are going through divorce like while we're yeah. at school and then also the parents are quite vulnerable because they're giving their child over yeah. for the first time which is I'm going to really struggle with that when I'm a parent I think because yeah. it is you know you've like been with this child forever and then you have to just trust have, the stranger yeah trust the stranger basically but I just found that so interesting and I, I would never have guessed that before I was a primary school teacher just like how much the teachers know about the family and yeah. the family dynamics yeah yeah um yeah it's just this interesting
0: kind of yeah yeah i know what you mean about the the no filter thing like even at the high school level they definitely have less of a filter than i would like i remember this funniest note i ever got from a student was well so they had written me this really nice note i appreciated it it was great uh but it basically said dear mr clark despite what you may have heard from other students and parents I think you're a great teacher <laughs> oh my gosh that is so and I was just funny. like
1: wait
0: what but, but were, <laughs> like, must what? have been doing that to tease you do you think that was like no no I think I, I think she was just trying to be nice but didn't realize the, like,
1: <laughs> what what was that like what that implied being, yeah that's but it so, so funny. funny oh my gosh so um, was, what do you think? The little self-reflective moment? Yeah, I what, like, were yeah. Your, what were your Yeah, well, I
0: mean, my, honestly, my first year was a bit rough. Like, I, I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. Um, you know, I've been trained pretty well in, like, the program that I was in. But, I, you know, nothing makes up for experience. So yeah. I just, you know, my second year was just far better than my first year in terms of what I was able to get done and, like, management of my students and all that, like, so I can understand. And this was, like, early on in first year when this was, like, yeah, December of my first year teaching. So, like i mean at that it point rough. it was it was rocky <laughs> yeah. um, so did I, they
1: know how old you were
0: <laughs> so i some of them were like you're you can not be more than 20 and i was like
1: that means i'm like <laughs> yeah. two years older than that <laughs> and
0: i'm like yeah you're 17 yeah. like, i'm surely older than that so some of them thought i was 20 some of them were like i don't know 27 28 and then eventually they found out because i ran a 5k and then, you know, when you yeah. do a 5K, they always have, like, age I groups. I
1: like how you say when you do age. <laughs> 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 if I <laughs> ever would have done
0: that. <laughs> I mean, park run, maybe. Yeah. A, yeah. But it's like, they just saw my results on a 5K. And, uh, you know, it just has, like, the age categories. Mm. And it says, Thomas Clark, 23 years old. And yep then they found out then you found out
1: your dirty secret yeah and you lost all respect they lost all respect they'd ever had for you yeah
0: pretty much pretty much and then they realized like wait i have like i have a brother who's older than you i'm like (laughs) yep you do yeah Uh,
1: that is so funny no but
0: I, i yeah i do miss them i just attended their graduation virtually and it was such a sweet experience uh seeing them all graduate like the kids that I, I I taught when they were sophomores, and then again when they were juniors, and then they've been seniors this past year after I left, and then yeah, seeing them like walk across the stage, oh, so these nice. rites of passage. Yeah, yeah, it was sweet. That was very um, really good. Cool. All right, well, let's uh, transition to our topic number two. <laughs> uh, not that we have to stick to any particular uh, set of <laughs> topics, but I want to make sure to ask you about another shared interest of ours besides teaching, which is russia so um yeah why don't you just talk about what your connection is to russia and yeah like sort of how yeah your your, your background with that yeah and... will do
1: um so my connection is that i lived there i moved there when i was one i lived there for 10 years so i came back to the uk in 2008 um and while i was there the context for why i was there was that my parents both um, big Russ files met on a Russian language course, in fact. Um, and so, like, it was relevant to both their careers. Um, and they moved because of my dad's work um, as a lawyer. But it was... My mum's a Russian hi- historian. Um, as in, she studies Russian history. She's not a historian who is Russian. Got it. Uh, the ambiguity <laughs> of language. Exactly. You know, as a linguist, man. it's Tell fascinating. <laughs> it. um, but anyway, so I lived there in Moscow and was fairly integrated. I mean, we... So i was enrolled in a russian language as in a russian school between they start at seven so i joined as soon as i could having been in an international school the anglo-american school shout out um before then and so that was three i guess only three years in the russian education so, so much is surprising because it feels like it was quite a substantive chunk of my life yeah um yes and then i so i didn't go back for like 10 years essentially and then returned for the best possible summer to return because I came back in 2018. I did an internship at a marketing, marketing agency there. It was very random, but it was an excuse, um, a very fun excuse to like try and revive my Russian, which had gotten a bit bad. <laughs> um, but 2018, for those who are not in the know, was the World Cup summer. Um, and it was really wonderful because it had changed just enormously in the 10 years. Since I'd been. It was also quite fun to go back as an adult because, yeah. I mean, I was not born there but I was essentially born there and you, of course, t- take it for granted because I wasn't thinking like, oh, what an interesting culture I'm surrounded by. I was like, oh, this is my life, you know? Yeah, so it was, yeah. um, and I think coming back, seeing it slightly from like an outsider's perspective um, with like, I was like Nick Carraway, you know? Yeah. <laughs> an outsider but also kind of in the inside. Anyway, and it was very, it, I found it fascinating and I, it's, a, it's, well I mean we can t- we'll talk about this a bit because of your how you got interested in Russia but have it, when I'd gone back this second time round I'd been in America for three years I guess at that point yeah. where it's such a hostile I mean there's just the relationships between the countries are so hostile and there's the kind of and I, I, because i I mean I remembered my experience there I had I would always get kind of defensive about it because it was kind of uh, like upsetting to hear the way people talk about it and like yeah. Cold War terminology almost as, yeah. again, like, you know, the Russians under the bed and, and yeah, I didn't really have much of a leg to stand on when I was describing what it's like now because I hadn't experienced it as an adult and, obviously, my perspective of Russia is still contained to Moscow which yeah. is a, t- a tiny part of an enormous country um, but I did really like going there as an adult and seeing how much has changed, seeing the kind of directions going in getting yeah. a stronger sense of like, because I was working at a company along Russians who were kind of my equivalent but yeah. in Moscow. Just having a sense of their perspective of what's going on. Yeah, yeah. Which is surprising and I don't think of the one that people would necessarily expect sort of young Russians to hold. I don't know. I found it really, I really enjoyed the experience. and. Yeah, having gone to America to be so different from the rest of my family, ended up like m- majoring comparative literature with a Russian focus. Following exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's
0: okay. That's fascinating. So I have a couple follow-ups to that. I think, which yeah. is like from the language point of view. So like, you were there as a child, you know. Yeah. So it's like you, you know, I'm sure your Russian was like very good as a child. But then you like leave for ten years, and then you're like working in a proper job with like, yeah. act- I mean, just the vocabulary that you use in like an actual like company as a young adult versus, like, the vocabulary you'd be using, you know, as a seven-year-old is just different. <laughs> so, like, yeah. even if you, like, I don't know, would it be fair to say that, like, your pronunciation and grammar and stuff was generally good, but, like, you, like, sometimes didn't know an obvious word that, like, you might need? Is that the kind of thing it was? Um, or?
1: so it is quite funny because I'd taken a couple of Russian courses at Princeton prior to going to Moscow this, this right. second time around. But as you say, my language development kind of froze at a ten-year-old's level. And I felt kind of... Com- I mean, c- yeah, my accent was, like, better than someone who's learning it um, from scratch. Uh, my sense of grammar is actually very poor. So, I mean, you, you can attest to this, but Russian grammar is an absolute joke. It's, like, it's almost <laughs> aggressively... Ru- it's, like, rude how hard it is. It's like, it's like we don't want you to learn it. Anyway, yeah, it is. Um, yeah. But, but it was just quite funny because one of the classes I took was a poetry class. And we were... So, one word that you'll know, but... To, um, our listeners but visiole which just means fun yeah. and so I used that all the time because it was just kind of my like, catch-all adjective if I liked something or if, whatever and it was just kind of funny because I would use it all the time in this classroom context and then we would were once analysing a poem and it was in it and then the woman the woman who's teaching it um, sort of said like oh and when he uses this very childish vocabulary <laughs> and then I was so embarrassed because uh. like, I've just been using that <laughs> throughout this whole class anyway so that was quite funny my so luckily the i couldn't have relied just on my russian and i needed they they spoke english at the company as well so that would sort of fill the gaps when i was struggling quite visibly struggling one thing that is quite funny is marketing and advertising i think it's kind of an imported it's kind of an imported industry um from the us or from the sort of anglosphere and so there's a lot of english words in a russian accent that's just being used and so one of the just the ones that i remember being so funny um we sort of we just like sitting around the table and they'd be like consumer experience (laughs) i loved it anyway so i feel like i was able to model through with all those things nice
0: yeah but no i think that's the best way to learn like to put yourself slightly outside your comfort zone right and then like if you just did something that was like already easy for you you wouldn't learn that much and if you do something where it's like you are constantly having to like keep your mind switched on yeah and like you know sometimes uh you know it's barely making it by but that's like when i think you yeah it's
1: exhausting you, though i took i remember there was one semester with complete like you have to take quite a few language classes um because you're doing two languages so there's one semester where it was basically three out of the four classes i was doing was in a foreign language and i was tired all the time because it's just you have to use your you have yeah. to be so active yeah. always you can't just like even when you're listening you have to be really active yeah um yeah, it is really hard. I mean, it's not hard, but it's very tiring. Yeah, I do and then I, that.
0: Yeah, you sleep well, and then you start dreaming in other languages, and that's when you know...
1: <laughs> that's, when you, yeah, that's when you know I've ever reached that. Yeah, no. It's like I dream in a foreign language, but I don't understand it, you know?
0: <laughs> Yeah, Yeah, no, the same thing happened to me when I did my first experience in Russia, so that was when I was 15 and studying abroad in Kazan during the summer, and I was there for six weeks living with the host family. I basically was, I had to use Russian, like, almost all day because I would go to school in Russian and then go home to my host family who did not speak a lick of English and yeah so the same experience of being just so completely exhausted that I would like fall asleep at like 9 or 10 p.m (laughs) which like I mean I now stay up until like 12 like midnight one but like I would just like not be able to you know I would just (laughs) crash and then yeah but you know you're it really it helped it helped a lot yeah to like I, I don't think like taking a language class that meets, like, once or twice a week can even compare to just, like, immersion. No. In, yeah.
1: But how come you were, what piqued your interest in Russia?
0: You <laughs> So, the, I have zero family connection to Russia. I have no, like, yeah, nothing like what you were saying about, like, your parents being, you know, Russophiles or anything like that. None of my parents know any Russian. Um, I literally was 10 years old, and my mom was going to the bookshop and was like, i mentioned that i wanted to like start learning a language you know just for fun <laughs> because i was bored in school and she was like oh, okay i'll pick something up for you and i didn't even say i wanted russian she was just like i'll just pick something up so she literally just picked up like the first book she saw i don't think she even knew that it was russian she just <laughs> just like grabbed it and got it and brought it home and was like here you go and it was just like a russian book
1: as in a book a proper book no no like a
0: russian learning a russian yeah and so this is when we're living in japan so it wasn't just like a textbook it was the kind of thing where it has these like dialogues and then you would actually tune into a radio station and then you like have to like catch the show and then you follow along in your book so then they print these books like each month so there'll be like an april book and a you know a may book and a june book and so on And then each day you tune into the radio and it's like, if you miss it, this wasn't like, this wasn't on the (laughs) internet. Like you could not just go on Spotify and stream it. It's like, you have to like be at the radio at 4pm to like catch the radio show and and follow along in your book.
1: So was the radio show an actual, there was a plot? So it was was
0: dialogues, but it was like lessons. So it was with Japanese. Well, I guess there was one Japanese teacher and one Russian teacher and they would do it together. Uh, But yeah, it was basically a Russian language course taught in Japanese with Russian language dialogues. So starting from just scratch, you know, starting from like, stresite, меня zavut, whatever. And like, you know, going on and on up to like really complicated dialogues and they had these storylines that just seemed really ridiculous <laughs> but you just kind of go with it um, and
1: I love I love <laughs> the stories that exist within like textbooks for language yeah, learning people yeah. go like they go into so much detail you must have um, did you learn Latin when you were
0: I, in- I I did learn Latin but not until I went to Princeton but, yeah, okay okay because then you would
1: have missed the beauty that is the Cambridge Latin oh, course oh the Caecilius
0: yes so yeah I'm I'm, I'm familiar with Caecilius
1: <laughs> <laughs> it just makes me laugh so much because I think like everyone who's learned Latin across the world it's yeah. like knows
0: the my boy Cauchelous,
1: saga yeah. It gets so dark. It,
0: yeah, it is. And it's just like casual slavery and yeah. like, oof. Like, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's true to the Roman times, I guess. They weren't exactly the most... Uh, one that, thing
1: um, yeah. that just makes me laugh a lot is that we... So we did it in my school. And then after a certain point, we sort of retired those books and moved on to different ones. Um, but there was one character, Quintus, who is the son of the main character. And Quintus is a... He likes to drink, he likes to party, what can I say? Um, but anyway, it was just quite funny because I went to an all girls school and the hormones were just like off the charts. That we, ha- we would grab any opportunity to sort of like like any figure we could sort of lust after together. And so Quintus was the object of our affection. Oh. All of us were obsessed with him, like, Quintus, he's so <laughs> like This is a cartoon character. And we were like, oh yeah, we love him, he's so cool. Anyway, and um, so after we moved on, people. Now I realise it's basically just, like, fan fiction that's yeah. just been created among students, but people would come back, oh, by the way, do you guys know that, like, in the later books, Quintus frees her slave and then marries her, and they're, like, coming up with all these stories, which I don't think actually are part of yeah. at all, <laughs> they were just being made up by the girls in my class, but we were, anyway, it was just quite funny. We yeah. weren't ready to say goodbye.
0: That's very funny. Wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. no. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of learning languages, uh, I think. I mean, I, I only know one language really well, and that's English, but I know many languages not well. How was <laughs> how's
1: your Japanese?
0: My Japanese is quite good, but I'm quite illiterate also. So, like, in terms of, like, <laughs> conversationally, so it's kind of similar. Maybe it's an interesting parallel to what you had with Russian, because, so I moved there when I was two, and then i stayed there until i was 14 so maybe a bit longer than you but still like 12 years yeah yeah yeah. um and then
1: that's a similar sort of stage
0: yeah similar stage i did not go to so i went to japanese kindergarten and then i went to an international school so kind of the opposite of what you did Mm -hmm. so i first went to a japanese kindergarten like at the basic like age three four five i was in like japanese like you know pre pre pre-k and kindergarten um and then starting in um, year Yeah, first grade, I, I switched to an international school. And from that point on, it's like all in English. And you, there were Japanese classes. So, you know, I was like in the advanced Japanese class and all that. But like, there's, you just can't learn as much, you know, when you're doing it twice a week as yeah. when you're, you're doing it all day. But does you, uh, did you day. speak it with your mom growing up? Um, mostly at home, we spoke English. Um, that was, yeah, I mean, my mom's English is very good. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we ended up just kind of defaulting to English at home. Which is kind of like a self fulfilling prophecy, right? Because then it's like, well, not a, it's not exactly a prophecy, but you know what I mean. <laughs> it's sort of like a, a positive feedback loop because the more you practice English at home, Yeah, the, then the more you just, it gets. easier it gets and whatever. Uh, but like my grandmother spoke Japanese and I speak Japanese to her. And I still have like some friends from my kindergarten that I would like occasionally meet up with. Um, but yeah, I definitely like, you know, in terms of like literacy, it's, it's bad. Because like Japanese has these characters and like in order to like read a newspaper and be considered like, you need to know like about 2,000 of them. The thing is each character has multiple different readings and it depends on the context. So it's not just like you have to learn 2,000 characters. Like I have a pretty good memory. I think I could learn 2,000 characters. However, you also have to learn like these characters all of their multiple meanings and then be able to like figure it out in context how to read it.
1: So the Um, different meaning, are they connected or are they completely? No,
0: so each one has a meaning so it's like a coherent meaning that's connected but it has different readings and pronunciations. So like um, let's, as an example, like yeah. I always use this example, but like the, the, Japanese word for water is mizu. Um, so if you just want to ask for water, like, can I have some water? Then you would say like, misu kudasai, and that's like, could I ask for some water? But like that same character, so it looks the same and it represents the idea of water can also be used in, um, like other compound words that sort of relate to water. So like sp- like swimming or like aquatic sports is suye. So. Sounds completely different. Yeah. But the first part, sui, is the same exact character as mizu. So it looks the same, but you have to know that in this context it's pronounced sui instead of mizu. Um, And there's a whole like historical reason for that. Like mizu is the native Japanese word for it. But then like a thousand years ago or something, a bunch of words were imported from Chinese. um, And then they, with, with the characters. So Japanese didn't have characters before they imported these characters from China. They had a different set of characters. And then when the Chinese characters came, they also brought along their Um, Sounds, But instead of like replacing the Japanese words, they just sort of like started living alongside. It's kind of like how in English we have words like cow and beef, where like cow comes Uh from like the Germanic. And then beef comes from like the French, like the buff, like from the the Norman invasion, Mm. etc. Right. So it's kind of like we have these like parallel things or like sheep and like mutton, which is like mouton whatever yeah. so it, it's sort of the same thing where you have these like parallel things but yeah the way it kind of manifests itself is, is quite interesting but you have to like learn all the the characters, and some characters have like four or five different pronunciations um and it'll just depend on like what it's combined with how to pronounce it so
1: but do you find it because obviously you don't know the characters but but you feel totally comfortable as in is
0: that what so i know i know like knowledge? the basic so i know a good number of characters just not like i know a lot of the basic ones that you would use to like you know order at a restaurant or like navigate a subway or you know like i mean in terms of like getting around i feel pretty functional in fact i've traveled pretty extensively in japan just by myself with no problem mm. um in terms of having a conversation it's like yeah definitely like kind of like what you're saying with russian like i i can make myself understood but I, like you know i i definitely struggled sometimes to like express the nuance of what i'm trying to say right um, it's like yeah. yeah so
1: i have a lot of questions i want to ask you from a linguistics person's perspective and also a polyglot Um, but just very quickly to the point about making yourself understood, it's quite funny because my older sister is, I mean she left Russia when she was uh, 16, 17, so she kind of speaks it totally comfortably and fluently and no one would even think that she was English if they were hearing her speak, but then she sometimes just, because it's not in constant use, will lose words, which happens to to me in English all the time to be honest but it's just (laughs) quite funny because she finds herself in funny positions where she was one time like at a um, coffee shop and wanted to buy some coffee but then couldn't remember the word for ground coffee. She just like totally sipped her mind. So speaking completely fluent Russian just seeming like a Russian person that all of a sudden is like, please can I have um, powdered up like, what was it, it's like brown dust or something. Like, she just like trying to describe it and they must have just thought she was a complete like, complete yeah. freak. Anyway, it just made me laugh. No, that's not um, But what I was going to ask you is that so I did German at college as well and it's it's, I mean unsurprising when you study it obviously everything the whole department it's like through the lens of the show and what happened in the 20th, um, 20th century yeah and so a lot of like German sort of enlightenment philosophy talked a lot about German language specifically and how because German a little bit like it sounds how japanese has but you sort of you make well actually maybe not but maybe this is a false comparison but like you, you know you can sort of make yeah, new nouns words exactly yeah. string words together and they were saying oh my goodness this is the reason why we're the big philosophy nation it's because like, our language is so fluid and so free that we're able we're like actually able to have thoughts that people who speak sort of lesser quote-unquote languages can't um and yeah <laughs> and, and and yeah and it's a very very sinister undertone to all that kind of stuff um but it's quite funny because so So, um, you know, it's very difficult to sort of hear people talk about that kind of stuff and not keep in mind the consequences of that type of thinking. And when I took one linguistics class, the professor that I had was, she was very much at the sort of Noam Chomsky school, the universal, what's it? Universal grammar. Yeah, exactly. Universal grammar and just kind of like how everyone has access to the same type of thoughts. Um regardless of what language they're speaking, but I was just wondering to you, not, I, I do believe, obviously everyone has the same type of thoughts, but do, do you notice when you're speaking different languages that you find it easier to express, like there's sort of some, some ideas that come more naturally to you when you're speaking that type of language that you find it easier to express, like the cultural differences that emerge through the ways that those yeah. different grammars function.
0: Yeah, it's actually a really fascinating topic, um, I think, so yeah, there's a, I think there needs to be a, a separation between like the cultural aspects of this and like the cognitive mm-hmm. aspects, so I think so there's this hypothesis called the uh, Sapir-Whorf hypothesis and in it's like strong form it's basically saying that like language shapes like literally shapes the way you actually see the world so for example the classic example for this would be that um like a tribe that only has that doesn't have different words for green and blue let's Mm -hmm. say right like some languages just don't they just use one word to describe green and blue. Um, literally cannot tell the difference between green and blue. Mm. Like their eyes, just, they see it as the same. Thing. Yeah. So that would be kind of be like the strong part. And they've like done some experiments to suggest this. However, yeah. there is some skepticism about this. And there's actually other explanations. So It's not that like you actually see them differently, but just sort of the way we group concepts might be different. So like you recognize them as different, but like in, maybe in the way that we could easily tell the difference between like a pigeon and a crow. like conceptually we're just sort of inculturated to see them both as birds and so like we don't really like yeah they're both birds kind of um so there are these all these methodological questions but like how would you actually show that yeah because i
1: guess even i mean i guess i don't know how they ran that study but if we would see like a light blue and a dark blue we'd call them both blue and so that might say whereas a
0: russian might say that they're different because yeah exactly but like yeah it's um yeah, so, so I, I am quite skeptical of these claims that like, oh, like certain languages are just like inherently better at this or that. I think that like each language has its cultural baggage and each language has certain ways of interacting with culture, right? So another example of this would be in languages like, you know, German or Russian or Japanese, there's a distinction between formal and informal, right? So like you would use a certain word for you when referring to like someone who is your elder or your better um, and a different like an informal you for someone who's your friend. Um, whereas like English doesn't have that or doesn't have it anymore. Um, but
1: yeah. Bring it back. I like that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Bring it back. <laughs> but it's like, that definitely is a cultural thing that shapes the like whenever you're in a Russian speaking setting, you kind of have to be aware of like, oh, is this someone that I would say tea to or yeah. Please. like, you know, it's like, you have to think about that. Um, whereas, like in English, you just say like, "Hey, how are you doing?" and you can literally say that to anyone.
1: It's and... so funny though, because actually, that's the more formal version, isn't it? You, oh yeah, so originally
0: the plural. So maybe yeah, yeah. we're
1: just super polite. Yeah, yeah. Whereas,
0: like, yeah, no, "thou" really... and "thee" is, the, is it's so funny because "thou" one
1: I just think because we think like, oh, old fashioned. It yeah. seems so much more. Yeah, bland, but that's actually yes. the informal. Yeah, yeah, no, it's
0: funny. Um, so yeah, there's definitely those cultural things, but but to say that like, oh, German is somehow like can express more things because of its certain structure, I I, I disagree with that completely. I think all languages are pretty much yeah. I mean, they are equally expressive i think in fact that's what makes something a language ra- rather than just a communication system so like other animals have communication systems like bees i actually just started beekeeping so i'm, I'm quite interested <laughs> but bees have their little bee dance where they can like indicate where where the honey is or whatever um that's communication but it's not language because they can't express arbitrary Thoughts, they can't just say whatever they want to. Mm-hmm. Pardon the dog barking in the background, yeah. this is one of the challenges of a I know, but it came in outside. right as we're talking about
1: animals. I know screaming. exactly,
0: animal communication. <laughs> so, exactly, he's communicating. Yeah, thank you for proving my point. But yeah, their dogs are communicating to each other, but they, they don't have language, they don't, they can't express the um, uh, you know the the third law of thermodynamics in dog barks you know they can't say um, express what it feels like to have your heart broken or to like lose a loved one like they can't mm-hmm. express any thought in the way that any human language can any language anywhere in the world can express any thought
1: it's quite funny isn't it because people always often point to words that don't exist in the english language you know being like oh you know Freud is a famous one but even though the word hasn't existed obviously all of us understand that phenomenon you sort of think oh finally there's a word that describes something we all know already it's not like oh now I know this thing this phenomenon I suddenly I feel Yeah. Yeah.
0: and then now you know what Schadenfreude is now an English word right because like English just absorbs words from other languages so it's like take that German like we just took it from (laughs) you but yeah (laughs) and and also like with German like Some of this, I think, is kind of like a misunderstanding about just the orthography. Like, in German, compound words are just written all as one word, whereas in English, you put spaces in between them. Mm. But in English, you can say things like the, you know, the, um, like, assistant vice principal, you know, of, you know, like, communications. I I, I didn't make any sense. (laughs) I I was just trying to string words together. You can just (laughs) string words together, but you put spaces in between. And in German, you would just sort of, like, glom them all together. But it's kind of the same idea, right? You can just form, like, language is... um, sort of uh, it's like constructive you can just sort of like put these things together um, and build up like using smaller pieces into bigger ideas and in German you just write that all in like one string mm-hmm. and then in English you separate them with spaces but yeah I don't know interesting topic though Yeah.
1: well I'm gonna have it's not the harsher segue because it's kind of connected but one thing that I I don't have a point to make it but other than one thing that I think has been kind of exciting about um, this sort of prolif- proliferation of texting and generally it's just I think there's like a new it, the language has shifted a lot, and yeah. I think about this a lot because sometimes, you know, for like, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, when you send that out as a text, and it means so much. Um, again, I don't really have a point, but I just, of yeah. something I thought, was, and also another thing I've always found kind of funny is. Um, like, you know, when you're yeah, just, you yeah, said, yeah, like, yeah. I'm. even doesn't have
0: to be the same string every time. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't at but... all.
1: Oh, it's just like the code. I, don't, I, I love that as well. Yeah. I just think it's kind of exciting. Yeah.
0: yeah and yeah. I wonder how
1: much is going to. I mean, already, I guess it's, it does filter into speech because, like, I say lol. <laughs> um, yeah. But I'm I'm more thinking about the future of, like, written like books and literature right, and stuff right. like that. And yeah. it's kind of. I wonder if that's even going to be not, like, gimmicky to mm-hmm. do something like that. Like, oh, I'm not trying to show text. Actually, just be. Hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah. I know. I think that's very interesting. Like, I think for for a long time, linguists have only focused really on spoken language, and the reason for that is that most languages in the world are are not written down. Actually, so it's like, yeah, all the major, like most people speak a language that's written, but most languages are not because like there's six thousand languages, and most of them are like just spoken by a few hundred or few thousand people, um, and are just don't have a writing system. Um, and so that's why most of the focus is on, is on the spoken. And that's sort of what's essential, right? Like every, any healthy developmentally typical uh, child will learn to speak. Um, and in fact, even if you don't, even if you're like, let's say, uh, hearing impaired, right? Like you can actually learn sign language and it's like a full language. It's like, it has all the properties of spoken language. It just uses a different modality. So it's like, that is like a very, very deeply built, like, I don't want to say like built in, but like, yeah, like we are sort of, language is part of what makes us human you know everyone learns language um whereas writing is is totally sort of secondary right like you can live a fine life without well okay not maybe not in the modern world but like you know t- historically speaking you did mm. not n- need to be able to write or read to like get by yeah um and in fact many people struggled with like reading and sort of like reading and writing things that like don't, it, for, for many people it doesn't come as naturally as, as speaking um so, yeah, but I am, it is interesting to look at, like, how speech impacts. There's actually an interesting book on what you were mentioning about, like, the internet stuff. It's called Because Internet. That's the name <laughs> of the book. Uh, and Sorry. it's just, it's written by a linguist, Gretchen McCullough. And it's all about sort of analyzing trends in how people use language as a result of texting and the internet and sort of splitting people into different internet generations and things like that. That's
1: so, interesting. Because right that. I guess the big impact it's had is just the speed like we need i don't know what was what was her thesis sort of what
0: was so yeah there were quite a few different things going on i think um i think there's like this feedback from the writing to the to the spoken so even though like the main domain of language is still speech like that doesn't mean that writing written language can't then influence how language changes right like what you're mentioning about using lol in a sentence like that's an example of like we originally only wrote that to like shorten laugh out loud or whatever but no one actually says laugh out loud and then so people (laughs) just started writing that and then it goes from writing into speech so like we're importing new vocabulary into our speech from the written domain so like yeah i think that's quite funny or like yeah like taking just acronyms like that and taking turning them into words and then you sometimes get like interesting scenarios where like you have an acronym that contains acronyms because the inner acronyms no longer feel like acronyms themselves they just feel like words i'm trying to think of exa- i can't think of an example <laughs> right now but yeah so i think there's like this interesting feedback between the the written domain and the spoken domain is sort of characteristic characteristic of of like this internet mm-hmm. uh, generation and then yeah like the need to encapsulate information so this is sort of another interest of in mine. it's like information theory but um encapsulate information that can't be conveyed uh just So so basically, you lose bandwidth when you communicate by text, right? When you're speaking, you have like facial expressions, you have like intonation, you have like all these other sort of ways of sending information to the person other than just the words. And when you just write down the words, if you just transcribe it, you lose all that information. You lose the tone of voice, you lose the facial expressions, you lose the gestures. So people need to sort of like come up with that. It's almost like, you know, when you like lose one of your senses, the Mm -hmm. other ones kind of like get stronger stronger or whatever. I don't know if that's true, but let's just assume it's true. Um, I've heard it's true. According to the Netflix show Daredevil, it's true. Um, But um, yeah, so like it's kind of the same thing with writing. Like when you lose all those other sort of channels, then you invent new ways to sort of express things. So that's why we have like emojis. Exactly. And like interesting punctuation. And like people read so much into like how many periods you put or, you know, the exclamation marks because those are now carrying more information. So
1: um, This is just a very topical comment because I had a um, quite passive-aggressive interaction with a c- colleague over message. And the reason I knew it was passive-aggressive was because I received a thank you with a period at the end of it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and
1: I was just c- kind of... You know, oh, rattled. I, was, I know, yeah. really rattled. And <laughs> I showed it to my um, dad and he just read it as completely neutral like and friendly and i just thought it was quite funny it's a generational difference
0: yeah the full
1: stop is just meant now (laughs) like means so much yeah
0: yeah yeah yeah. Um, no it's true or like when people use emojis wrongly like there's this i mean it's kind of bad to laugh at this but there would be like i've seen examples of like older people sending texts being like oh did you hear like so and so died and then they'll send like the crying face emoji. (laughs) but it's like the laughing crying so just like you know (laughs) (laughs) somehow we just have learned that that's not what that means but yeah. yeah Um, yeah I guess
1: these I mean this is how language works full stop but we haven't really got I guess we there doesn't yet yet exist a kind of dictionary of emojis in an official way does there so it's it's all kind of built up from the there's not like any top down person confirming the like
0: right right yeah, yeah, and that's, language, that's just groceries. not how languages work, right? Yeah. So you have these things like the, you know, Académie Française or whatever, where they, like, try to say, oh, hamburger cannot be a French word. Yeah. So I shouldn't make <laughs> I shouldn't make fun of people on this podcast. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> but I feel like with French people, it's okay. <laughs> Sorry to any French people. Um, which, like, there is a lot to be said for, like, preserving your, your language from, like, I don't know, attempts to... For, if it's, like, let's say a language is going extinct. But French is in, like, no danger of going extinct. Yeah. And... What, what they're actually trying to do is just sort of freeze it in time whereas like all languages change. I mean like, you know, Shakespeare we can understand, but if you go back to Chaucer and you hand that to like a student today, it's it's quite a bit yeah. and Chaucer's only a couple hundred years before Shakespeare and then you go back to Beowulf, incomprehensible yeah. to the typical. So I mean in just a thousand years, which is a blink of an eye historically, I mean it's not that many generations um, a language can completely change and become incomprehensible so I mean it, to try to prevent that from happening it's it's just not really the way lang- language is organic it's emergent it just sort of comes about between like the interactions of people um and just trying to freeze it in time is just ultimately a pointless goal i think that said i do feel bad for like certain small like endangered languages that like are gonna die out um without you know preservation yeah yeah, efforts. And, yeah. so I, I i do really believe in the preservation efforts of like keeping languages alive but trying to keep them the same eh,
1: but I guess keeping something alive also means allowing it to continue to be dynamic. Yes, yeah. Otherwise it becomes a bit like,
0: yeah, Latin. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. Latin, Latin is quite interesting. <laughs> to return it's a, Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's, Latin is quite a unique example of, well, it's not the only one. There's like, you know, ancient Greek, Sanskrit. There's like mm-hmm. a couple other languages that are also still sort of like these, usually like liturgical languages that are used in, let's say, uh, important religious ceremonies and texts, sacred texts and things like that that have been preserved and people still learn them sort of in their yeah. original form. I
1: guess they're so, they're so culturally dominant that so much text that we like still engage in.
0: Yeah. tradition, yeah. yeah. Which I find fascinating. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with like learning a so quote-unquote dead language and like trying, trying to learn it. Like the, you know, the fact that Latin like, you know, mutated and gave us French and Italian and Portuguese and all that doesn't mean that like we can't learn Latin anymore. Like if we have access to it, like, like a frozen language is still a language too, so yeah. Uh, yeah I mean, you, you can have both. Okay. Yeah. It's ready, very yeah. good. Yeah.
1: Interesting stuff. Go so uh, what? Um, because you study linguistics within.
0: So yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, computer I, science. Well, yeah, within. So so some of some of what I've been saying is like not exactly really relevant to like my current research. Um, I mean, I'm interested in linguistics broadly. It's just that like I did computer science at Princeton, and that's sort of my background. It's sort of where I'm. It's kind of my niche. So. Yeah, like right now I'm doing like machine learning for, for language, which is completely unrelated really. Okay. I mean, I use some linguistics, but it's more of like a data science kind of problem where it's like you have a data set and you're trying to, you know, build a model of, of something based on that. Um, and yeah, I do think like having linguistic knowledge, like like knowledge of linguistics and knowledge of languages can help. Um, with that I I think like too many computer scientists are just like oh just here's the data apply an algorithm and boom like without trying to like introspect a little bit about it but there's also this joke that like people have in like the sort of natural language processing like algorithmic language type of community where it's like oh every time we fire a linguist our model gets better so sometimes like linguists yeah
1: because what would the introspection (laughs) lead you to as in what
0: yeah it's like unclear so like sometimes it's like well linguists can have these theories but like that doesn't necessarily mean that's going to lead to like a better prediction so like i think that the two sides often don't talk to each other you have these like linguists who like analyze things very theoretically and come up with these like um well sometimes they're pejoratively referred to as like armchair linguists who'll just sort of like ah yes according to like people say this about like noam chomsky that he's like mm. not super like empirical he'll just sort of like sit there and it's say like up with according to my intuition like yeah. this is the way languages work
1: which is also <laughs> old school philosophy let's be real yeah
0: yeah and then on the other side you just have like the data science kind of people are like okay let's look at this data set and like use this algorithm and just extract a pattern but like it's not really like interpretable and like you can't say like oh this is how this tells us something about how the brain works. It's just sort of like, okay, it, this model achieves this accuracy, it's useful. You know, it's an engineering problem. Mm-hmm. So like those sides don't really talk to each other, which is I think kind of bad. And then recently there's been some interesting work of like looking at linguists as people who can like, who, who are probably best suited to like poking the holes in these models. So like these computer scientists will come up with these like language models. And then like linguists may be best situated to like find their weaknesses. So like create like interesting inputs that like a human would be able to solve but that a machine wouldn't. So an example of this would be there's something called the uh, Winograd Schema Challenge in like natural language uh, inference. So basically an example of this would be a sentence like the trophy didn't fit in the suitcase because it was too big. Okay what was too big? Oh
1: uh, yeah yeah the trophy.
0: Obviously. Yeah. But they, if you ask that to like these computer mm-hmm. models it's, it's technically it's ambiguous right? The it yeah. What is it supposed to refer to? Yeah. And in fact, in many sentences, the it just refers to the closest noun. So if this is just trained sort of naively on a big mm. data set, it may just pick up that, oh, whenever there's an it, it oh, it just refers to like, the closest noun. But it, it would get it wrong in this case, because the suitcase would, would be the yeah. closest noun. But like based on our common sense, it's obvious that, obvious that it's the trophy. So like that's sort of like, you know you wouldn't just come up with that. Like, it kind of took like a kind of clever linguist to sort of come up with those examples. So... Like, that's sort of an area where I think linguists can contribute to this, is, like, coming up with things like... And then, now that they, they identify that, then they can, like, look and see, like, oh, what can we do to, like, improve AI to, like, better handle those kinds of situations.
1: Mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. AI. Thoughts? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, because I, um... Well, there was a panorama, which I haven't seen, which is the BBC program, on AI. But it's quite funny, because I... Obviously, coming from such a deeply, deeply humanities perspective, like, I didn't have any I don't know access to kind of scientists or scientific thinking I'm sort of trained to be quite luddite about AI and also like people who study humanity sort of grasp onto their own discipline to sort of say we are so relevant because bots will never be able to I mean I guess yeah. it's kind of the thing that you're describing but have like nuance or be creative and stuff like that but I'm, I'm now doubting this because obviously it's just going more sophistic- to more, get more sophisticated right yeah
0: yeah I think, I I honestly don't know if, like, AI will ever reach human level intelligence. Some people think it's obvious that it will. Some people not only think it's obvious that it will, but it's obvious that it will, like, in the next, like, few decades. I don't know. I just don't find that that to be obvious. Um, I mean, I think it totally could. Mm -hmm. I'm just, like, not, I mean, I'm not sure. And I actually just, I don't, I think it would require sort of, like, a paradigm shift in sort of the way things are done. Because currently, like, the best sort of, I don't know most impressive looking AI things that that you point at like it, if it's just it's just narrow AI right so it'd be like okay given images of like I don't know animals like classify the animal like is it a dog or a cat okay humans can do this machines can also now do this very well okay so like if you give a machine like there there are program there are algorithms that can identify what kind of animal it is at basically human level like 99% accuracy mm-hmm. great but then you can only do that. And then, like, it can't, like, reason about, you know, new things, right? And so um, then you have to train, like, a separate model for that. So what what people are really looking for is, like, artificial general intelligence, which can just sort of solve any problem in the way that that humans can. And I don't know. Just that that doesn't really seem to be, like, that anything super close to that right
1: now. Why? Why are they doing that? Like, is in, what is the... Because I think that... Um... It just—it seems a little Faustian. The idea of like we, it's possible. So like now I have to try and reach that. Like yeah. see if I can complete this yeah. task. Because I understand AI completely being used to replace menial, boring tasks. Yeah. So that you can like get to the thi- you know humans can do the thinking instead of doing it. Right. The, right. But. To me, the idea of, like, a general AI, it doesn't... I'm, like, I don't think that's something we need. Yeah. <laughs> at all. I don't it, know. Yeah,
0: it is a little scary. Um, I don't know. Some people, like, I think there's, like, this big existential threat, like, it's going to actually, like, kill us. Once it's smarter than us...
1: Yeah. Then
0: it might not even, like, hate us or w- wish us badly or anything, but it just, like, because it has goals that are bigger than us, like, we'll just be sort of, like, the ants that get killed when, like, a housing development goes up and they, you know, bulldozer the land, you know? Yeah. Like, it just... It doesn't hate us it just like will have bigger goals and yeah, exactly. become it just does think
1: about us yeah what's more painful you know <laughs> yeah
0: so i don't know i mean that's definitely i mean i don't know i just i find it like hard to really see that happening but then again i could be totally wrong about this yeah. um i don't know i think like cracking language is kind of like the biggest thing like if you can have like there are there are like ai things that do pretty good language analysis in a lot of ways but a lot of them are just sort of like prediction based like matching a pattern so like you may have heard of something called like gpt3 which is like this algorithm that can basically you give it like a prompt and it will just generate like very very plausible looking text so like you, you give it like the article uh, you give it like the the title of an article like let's say scientists discover unicorns or something mm-hmm. and it'll just it'll literally write an entire article about like this scientist was in argentina and discovered like a rare tribe of unicorns and all this stuff obviously it's never actually seen an article like that um, so it's not just like regurgitating something it saw before, but it's like synthesizing based on like lots mm. and lots of, of data. But again, it's just sort of like it creates a reasonable completion, but it doesn't mean it's like actually thinking like it's sort of just um, like you just can easily break. It. Yeah, you can like easily break this break this by actually asking it to like reason about something like so like if you ask it to fill in the blank in the sentence like, you know, the the 9-11 terrorist attacks took place in the year blank. It's obviously going to be able to fill in 2001 because there's tons of like data on that in, in the internet, um, and you know it, there's like e- that's just easy. Like th- there are many articles re- referring to that string, so just fill in the blank, right? But if you say something like you know September 11th, 2035 will be the blank anniversary of the 9/11 attacks, then it just like can't do it because it, that would actually require it to like and think
1: original thoughts and
0: yeah. yeah, and then think like okay, what I need to do here is do a subtraction. And even though computers are way better at math than we are and could easily do a subtraction, it just, like, can't think to do that yet. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. So, I mean, maybe, there are definitely people who are working on this. So, it is an exciting field to keep an eye on. But, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm interested in your, like, sort of, uh, what you mentioned about, like, the in the humanities, sort of having, a, I guess, maybe more of a skepticism towards AI or towards, like, we don't need this. Um, yeah, like, do you think that there is sort of, I don't know, something... I guess this gets like a bigger philosophical question of like do we do we have everything we need to be happy without like improving technology further or like is the is the key to happiness more technology solving more of the world's problems or is the key to happiness or key to whatever we want to call it maybe not happiness maybe like thriving or like human flourishing or whatever we want to call it like where where does this key to that lie is it in like better philosophy better like ethics like people treating each other better but even if our technology never advances further beyond beyond this or i don't know like you have thoughts yeah. on
1: yeah i mean my thoughts are that now i'm gonna probably like mischaracterize a large group like group of people's thinking um so i'm just saying from the outside or like rather from my perspective i think i am a little bit unsettled by the kind of like silicon valley like max out potential effective like constantly effectiveness yeah, you know, optimizing. Com- yeah, optimizing. Thanks. Yeah. That's the word I was looking for. Um, because, as I said, it just seems kind of Faustian. it's almost like, can we like? It's always looking ahead to try and think about how we can constantly be like, constantly be improving, but go beyond being human a little bit. So that's yeah, the transhumanism. So is yeah, like an and I find thing. that yeah. I do find that a little bit sinister because I think it's. Um, I don't know one one perspective in which I find it kind of like kind of stark that attitude and how differently I guess I relate to it and I'm curious what you think about this, but is in the field of philanthropy because, so you surely know because Peter Singer, i a yeah, old yeah. um,
0: effective,
1: effective oh. altruism so that that type of mindset and you can, it's so compelling and I completely understand why, especially if you're thinking you know, constantly
0: yeah.
1: uh, I don't know about how to yeah do as much good and as much and as, like less effort and less time possible, um, but they kind of is lacking Heart to me, yeah. and it's like, yeah. I think it's so, even though I guess you can't. I mean, I don't know. I think the way I think about it is kind of old now, and I don't because it doesn't really stand up against proper debate beyond just being like it just doesn't sit well at all. But, um, but the idea of like comparing that, you know, somebody like doing some algorithms to figure out that this is the best approach versus somebody who I mean, this is always an example I think of because it is kind of ridiculous but someone who like, loves squash and then starts up a camp for kids yeah. who might not have access to squash to play it and to me they're just like even though technically it's what's more helpful what's more useful you kind of can't make the argument that it's a squash I don't know yeah. i'm yeah. really inarticulate about this no I, I think just, like, i think it makes always... what
0: you're saying i totally it makes sense i mean i i know a lot of people who are into like the effective altruism thing and i see why right it's just like it's so like empirical it's so yeah, like data driven exactly. it's just like see where your dollar can do the most good and like you know like th- there are big things like malaria nets right like if you just like the cheapest way to like save lives like the most like lives saved per, per dollar yeah. is like just buying malaria nets for people who don't have them and, like, that honestly is a really good idea. Like, I, I yeah, it's, like, super preventable debts. Like, we should definitely invest more in yeah. there. There are a lot of phony charities out there that, like, you give them and, like, 90% of it goes to overhead. And I'm like, yeah, just take money from that and give, and it, to, give, it, to- <laughs> give it to the millionaire. Sure. But, like, at the same time, I wouldn't say it's, like, it's wrong for someone. Let's say someone who has a lot of money and they want to set up a foundation to, like, I don't know, provide squash opportunities to, to kids. I mean, personally, I'm not that into squash. But, like, if that person genuinely thinks that that is a source of, of meaning and purpose, I mean... I don't know, how do you, yeah, how do you compare that to other ways of, of spending money or, or using resources in, in some way? I mean, obviously you can have a debate about certain things being more or less trivial than others, but I, I don't think that everything can ultimately re-reduce to just some quantitative measure.
1: Yeah. I agree, because I feel like it's, it's losing, I don't know, that it just, it detracts from the kind of spontaneous, like, human... Yeah encounters and that I think are so important
0: yeah Um, yeah. I I think that like you can like we could end up in a world right where like no one dies of disease like let's say everyone only dies of old age at the age of 100 Uh, yeah all disease is eradicated all childhood mortality is eradicated etc 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 but you could also have like a world full of miserable people yeah (laughs) like there would still be the question of like what gives you purpose what you know are you thriving um, as a person as a society et etc so i don't think that utilitarianism can fully answer that obviously they would say that like okay yeah someone who's miserable like let's say they have like you know clinical depression has like you know is not having as much utility as someone who is like mentally healthy but it doesn't necessarily tell you how to get there right yeah. it, 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 now so. okay
1: now i'm remembering why i don't like it because i was reading quite inarticulate when i was expressing it but it's i think that what also really unsettles me about this type of perspective is it doesn't leave any room for the vulnerable actually like as in because if you're constantly thinking about the utility like what how one's contributing. That where does that leave people who, like, don't in, in factor into the sort of mathematical yeah. equations of how right. to make the world? And that really, really makes me, ner- makes me nervous um, mm, yeah. in the long term. I don't know. I remember now um, I'm steering towards, like, the sort of religious ethics perspective on things. But within the Bible, there's some kind of interesting and actually kind of tricky bits where Jesus will encounter someone who's blind and then give him sight yeah. um, and obviously the, it begs the question like what about the people whom he hasn't encountered who just like continue to be blind Yeah. but the, the way I kind of read those in, those passages it's often like I actually think it's more like an allegory for just the power of human connection mm. and these like random encounters that connect you to somebody and make you have feeling and help the individual that you've met and I don't know I feel like those types of scenes don't really factor into
0: like yeah, yeah. This <laughs> type yeah. of
1: like approach.
0: Yeah, the human connection. Yeah, I, yeah. Like, this is sort of, this is a, will seem completely unrelated at first, but yeah. I do think it's kind of an analogy for, for this, right? So, another theme that I'm often interested in is like urban design and urban planning. Yeah. And I think that, like, in the 50s in the US, you saw this move to like build these huge highways in the name of efficiency, right? Yeah. So, it's kind of like this effective altruism approach. Like, let's just get the most people from point A to point B as quickly as possible. Yeah. So, like, entire neighborhoods were just like destroyed, and like, you know, highways were built and parking lots were paved up everywhere like in the name of efficiency and just like maximizing like transport from like point a to point b but then what you lose is like that sort of like the urbanism the the walkability the the, the neighborhood right and so actually you find these like perverse results where you know people will be super alienated from the people who live around them because they just use a car to drive everywhere they don't walk and like when you walk you're just like spontaneous like i can't even tell you the number of times in cambridge i've just been like walking and just bump into someone i know yeah, it's and so just wonderful. spontaneous and then you stop and even if it's just like a three-minute conversation like that ends up being very meaningful and very valuable you just feel connected like even now we're just sitting here on the grass and like we're surrounded by people yeah. and i mean it
1: makes you happy yeah it yeah. just it
0: just whereas like how do you measure that like is there a quantifiable way to do that and like i mean it's a bit hubristic to think that like we can and that's what led to like the what I see is like the horrible atrocity of like destroying so many American cities, like in, the, just name in, of, in the name of like efficiency and yeah. just like, yeah, just like ruining the sort of spontaneity. It's quite funny because I
1: don't want to go into this territory because it's kind of a minefield, but it, <laughs> these are the questions that I guess the government across the world has had to face and like, how do you weigh up when you think about lockdown policies? Like, how do you weigh up the data, the numbers that you see of like deaths rising right. versus the sort of things that make life pleasurable and yeah. exciting yeah, anyway. yeah, yeah. so it's yeah these are relevant questions yeah certainly.
0: yeah i don't have any like answers to those questions but i do think they're important questions to answer yeah or, i because, don't yeah, yeah. Sorry, like I'm a, oh yeah no, i mean just like yeah I, I i definitely like i think it's a i don't envy anyone who's like in the government and trying to make these decisions but like you do have to balance like the lives lost to COVID, but also like people's mental health also mm-hmm. like drug overdoses suicides like, like, death like despair. yeah so it's like there are multiple data points to, to look at and there's no like one solution that easily fits everything not so, at
1: all and yeah. the same is true with i mean i do as i say like there's a super compelling and reasonable um like argument in favor of basically from, like silicon valley approach that i was describing um which may be unfair to like label that whole sort of community in that way but yeah, I just think it's a toss-up, right? As as most things tend to be, but yeah. I do think that it's very important that these things are still debated. And one thing that I find a bit um, that makes me a bit anxious is these with these like different seats of power emerging, and you just what you're describing within the field of um, um, that you're working in of kind of like the armchair linguistic armchair linguists versus a sort of like data approach, and the fact that they're not really there's not that much discussion between them. Is it happening on a much larger... like kind of macro scale if you consider? these different seats of power, which, you know, are actually, like the distance between them is kind of physically illustrated <laughs> yeah. by the fact that like, one isn't, let's just, you know, label one the kind of Silicon Valley tech approach, which has, you know, has agendas to load at a term, but, like, has its own perspective on, like, how to efficiently run things. And then compare that to the kind of, institute like, more historic, like, institutional
0: yeah.
1: seats of power. So, you know, politics, like, the Supreme Court, all this type of thing. And I feel like that's so... I mean, it's funny, because I was studying... Um, I did a, one... I studied, like, intellectual property law. And that was quite a funny thing where you see how divergent and how little they understand each other was how, like, intellectual property law is trying to keep up with what's happening in, like, the tech sphere. Yeah. Um, And, you know, if you read any of the judgments... They don't know what they're talking about, which makes sense because it's like the pace of change that happens in, in
0: like yeah, law. It's is
1: so slow, and it has to be, and it should be, kind of. Yeah. You know, if you want and this There's like, technologies
0: now that like did not exist yeah, ten years 100%. ago. Yeah, hundred like percent. And then you're trying
1: have, yeah. to like apply sort of historic precedent to something that literally is new. So it's yeah. it's very difficult. And I don't. Yeah. I wonder. Um, and there is also it even happens in the sort of terms like humanities and STEM or and that type of stuff. And people are so quick to box themselves into one. And I do think there's just very little, like, interaction. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah I wonder how to address it, though. Because, I mean, I'm saying this to someone, like, who has not, probably will not, feels like she cannot, like, study sort of a STEM subject in any serious way. Um,
0: well, as a former math and computer science teacher, yeah. I say, you can do it. <laughs> no. I know. I-, I do think, like, interdisciplinary things are, are very important. Like, there's sort of, like, a very... I don't know. A lot of people like to give lip service to it, but I, I do think that like people need to have some amount of training in both yeah. humanities and STEM subjects. Like I'm very glad that those are sort of like at least at Princeton, right, we have like requirements from many fields. Yeah. So it's well, like nice. you have to take some humanities. <laughs> well. Whether I learned anything in my science courses yeah. is a different question. Yeah. <laughs> I
1: know the name of a couple bridges. Bridges, <laughs>
0: nice. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't... It, it is It is tough. I, I think, like, as you mentioned, the world is getting so big and global and interconnected and complicated that it's, like, no one person can... Like, no matter how interdisciplinary you are, no one person can actually understand the entire economy or the entire yeah. whatever, right? So the I think the only real... It's not even a solution, but the, the only thing you can do in that approach is to sort of, like, I guess, like, delegate, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's sort of, like, what company, you do in a company. sort of, like, delegate. Each department can kind of sort of have some autonomy. And, like... I don't know if you look at like sort of the u.s it's like so big compared to like when the founding of the u.s like way back in the 1700s there's so many people and i think like a lot of the problems can sort of trace back to the fact that it's like so big and like let's say the election right it's such like a winner take all sort of thing and like half the country ends up getting so upset because they yeah. didn't get who they wanted whereas like if more things were sort of done at a local level um You know maybe people would just worry about like their city or their state and like i don't know i think like politics actually the whole word politics comes from greek polis which you know is a city so like it it emerged at a time of like city states and like at the level of a city state you could almost actually know most of the people around you or at least feel like you belong feel like your vote kind of matters i think we are getting to this point where people just feel like their vote doesn't matter Mm -hmm. you see this whole thing where like democracy used to be this like great thing that's like oh for sure every country is going to be democratic but actually like in recent years people have been talking about a, a, a lot about how there's been sort of this backlash against democracy right yeah. um
1: yeah and, it seems sort of inefficient and unfair yeah
0: yeah and some of the most successful places are actually not or going like going against yeah the the trend towards democracy so yeah i don't know like there is this principle and philosophy and theology and things like that of like the principle of subsidiarity i of love like, subsidiarity yeah
1: because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, i was just about to talk about that but it's just funny because that's so i mean it, where does like where did it first come because yeah. part of me when I first like read about subsidiarity I was like oh I invented that like that's how I've always felt you know um, but then I think it might also be because I was sort of growing up in a, in a household that wasn't using those terms it kind of raised me to think in that way yeah. um, but this is so to go back to what I was talking about with this like global the, 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 there is problems against subsidiarity like that's the way my heart naturally goes and it makes sense to me and it's like you know, you have these concentric rings sort of obligation, and then it it builds up, builds up to the point that sort of everyone is addressed, kind of. Um, But then, on that scale though, you can't achieve, I mean, for example the big one at the moment, which is like where globalism is the only answer, I guess, would be something like addressing climate change, right? Yeah. So it is difficult, because it's like, it's I can see also how people you know, as someone who's naturally kind of freaked out about idea of, like, these massive sort of transnational um, institutions, just because they don't seem like they could possibly be efficient, and also it doesn't give much power to the individual. Yeah. Then when somebody starts talking to me about the arguments for it, you can also understand them too. So I do, no, but I do naturally, massively agree with you on the subsidiarity side. Yeah.
0: No, I think it's, like, definitely something that has to be kept in mind, but I don't think it's, like, a band-aid that you can just, or I don't think it's, like, this magic silver bullet that will, will instantly solve anything, because, yeah, like, if Amazon can, like, literally make things for like one-tenth the price of like your local craftsman it's just like i mean how can they like even if you make those big corporations like illegal like what are the incentives people will just like sort of like try to like come up with ways around the system right to like the reason subsidiary worked in the past is because there wasn't an alternative you didn't have the internet and could like communicate with someone in china like instantly you didn't have like shipping and you know trains and all this stuff so like everything had to be local and people sort of like made the best societies that they could with that or they tried to um, in some cases <laughs> um, but now it's like we have the alternative of a global economy so like yeah. you would have to actively choose to like limit yourself which this, I guess
1: you see happening in a, a little I mean yeah. this is all quite a blunt sort of description of these historical events but like you know there has been a pushback against so with UK leaving the yeah, EU is an example yeah. of like sort of a let's focus on yeah
0: yeah, the, yeah that's sort of an example yeah but yeah it's it's, it's tricky to, like, actually, like, applying it to the modern world. Like, even something like developing vaccines for COVID, right? Yeah. It's like, how are you supposed to just do that? Is every country supposed to come up with their own vaccine? Like, yeah. that seems silly. Like, don't reinvent the wheel. If one <laughs> if one country gets it, like, surely, you know, you yeah. should share with the whole world and, you know, build things, like, build vaccines on, on a like, global scale. So, like, there, yeah, there are interesting cases of, like, where this would actually apply or not. But I, I do think it's something that's often overlooked. And kind of going back to something we said earlier about, like, all the people with, like, deaths and despair and stuff like that. I think a lot of that comes from, like, this feeling of, like, isolation or, like, in uh, Emile Durkheim's words, anime of, like, sort of, like, normlessness, of of Mm -hmm. not really being in a social framework, uh, having, like, social capital, things like that, Mm -hmm. Um, which is, yeah.
1: One thing that is so lovely, um, I mean, it's a little bit sad in this this current um, situation, but apparently they did this one study where... Did I you about this or not? I just I love don't think it. So. Okay, but basically, they did this one study where people, even people who consider themselves introverts, or sort of like a large swathe, were asked to strike up a conversation with somebody on their daily commute. And the, the term conversation was liberally used because it even meant something as tiny as, like, you know, what's the next stop? Or, like, can I please take this? Is this yeah. you take? something like this. And every single person reported, like, an improvement in their mood throughout the rest of the day wow. just for having this tiny little interaction, which, yeah. Makes sense to me a lot. Yes, yeah. I feel like as we were describing, yeah. just walking around, seeing I, a friendly face. Yeah,
0: I, I think that's why lots of people look back on like their college years as being some of their like best times or whatever, because you sort of live in this sort of it's almost a forced, artificial form of it. But like where you are, everyone's walking and everyone you're yeah, see, you're yeah. running <laughs> into people that you know all the time, and you're striking up casual conversations. And then like let's say you just get a job and you're like working in the big city, and you just like go back to your apartment by yourself and you know, I don't know, at least in New York, no one talks to people on the subway. Yeah. I feel like so. You no, can urban sort of alienation
1: feel, is such a true, yeah. like real phenomenon. I felt it to a small degree when I was, yeah. I mean, I say to a small degree because I went, when I was living in New York, like I was surrounded by people I went to college with. And yet, even then, if you can, yeah, even then, I think it was such a stark change from Yeah. this sort of environment you were describing when you're in, on yeah. a campus.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, <laughs> I don't, I feel like I always bring up problems without mentioning solutions. I don't know, but uh, <laughs> it is, it is a, uh, it's something that people have to think about. I think, like, maybe, like, the connections and cultivating that is is a way forward. And also, like, just, I don't know, thinking about it, having visions of, like, a, a different way of living, of a better world. And I think maybe that's where, like, art and literature and things like that, the humanities can come in and, like, inspiring people, right? Like, there's this, I don't know, like, Dostoevsky said, beauty saves the world or will save the world. I forget exactly what he said, but... Um, <laughs> um, but, yeah, that, like, we need something to inspire us to, like, you know, lead good lives and things like that well so. what,
1: um, one thing that I've always felt is such a useful role that art and literature plays um, is t- with storytelling how basically it builds up these connections that we're describing about these human human connections without it even needing to be with another person but kind of like a soul meeting another soul type yeah. story uh, type, type experience and, um, the, and I remember one moment when I was growing up and I was sort of was like wow this is where the power of stories comes it was um I was studying Russian history, and we were studying the um, pogroms when Jews were basically um, attacked by Russian, um, Russian imperial army. Kind of, I mean, I guess everyone knows what pogrom is. But yeah. anyway, but I remember I was sort of studying it, and obviously it's a horrible story, but it's kind of numbers, and you hear these sort of details but doesn't really resonate that much and then at the same time as that i was watching Phil on the roof wonderful film one of my faves but just like how different it is when you just see the story being told about that experience and it just i don't know it's like so deeply moving and you're not gonna i mean unless you have an absolutely fantastic teacher like you're not gonna cry in a history classroom but you you can cry when you're watching or reading a book and yeah i don't know i think that that is very i think it's just really stories
0: yeah okay (laughs) so that makes me want to ask you so do you have any um a book or a movie or I guess just in general story uh recommendations I always try to ask this <laughs> yeah people that's a good they, question okay um,
1: story recommendations it can be
0: any form it can be a yeah. musical or a book or but a... I do
1: love musicals I love them so much I mean <laughs> Fiddler on so the good. Roof I actually have
0: never seen it which I feel really it's bad about it's wonderful I have and, and I really,
1: really recommend really recommend you um see it I actually okay this is an, I'm now going to recommend an experience that no one can have I think because I think it's shut but I saw three times when I was in America Fit on the Roof but performed in Yiddish which is obviously the language that the characters would have been speaking and the it's quite the history of the show is actually quite interesting because it was first so so Fit on the Roof is based on these Yiddish short stories was an English language play though and then in the 60s was translated into Yiddish but absolutely did not gain any traction because at that time like the way that Jews I mean the, the, people who spoke Yiddish, the way they related to Yiddish was kind of with a bit of shame like it was not it was like a lower language it wasn't yeah no one was interested in like there being a kind of new Yiddish cultural scene mm-hmm. at all yeah. so it was kind of buried and didn't end up having and then was uncovered quite recently and now everyone relates to it completely differently because it's a language that's I, I mean dying isn't even a word it was killed off basically yeah. by like um, the Nazi regime and very few people still speak it um, and, oh, and also partly the reason why Yiddish was so popular in the 60s is because Israel was, like, they were trying to encourage Hebrew to yeah, speak. So yeah. even people who did speak Yiddish were now speaking Hebrew to their children. Um, anyway, so they did this version of it in New York, and it was originally in the Jewish Museum there, but then they actually moved it to a Broadway theatre. Um, but it was so wonderful. And I think just, like, hearing, like, a story be told and the actual language of the characters adds this, such... like, a strength of meaning. Um, And here, on the Roof, okay, I'm just going to go all in on Fiddle on the Roof now as my recommendation, but it is actually quite a wonderful historical document as well, because it tells the story very, very well of what happened to Jews um, in that, from that um, part of the world, because, so, spoiler alert to those who haven't seen it, but it ends with them having to, they're, like, forced out of the country, um, forced out of the town that they're living in, and so there were five daughters, and then, all like, three of them travel to different parts of the world um and so that kind of describes like so part one of them goes to poland one goes to america and then actually this is not entirely true another character not on daughters but goes to palestine and so it's just quite interesting way of just like and then each of those obviously are going to have their own histories that we all know quite well but um I just think it's Okay, really I will definitely have to see it. Yeah, I mean I
0: I can't believe I've made it to this age and never never actually seen Fiddler on the roof. It's a yeah. good it's a great yeah. and also seeing things in like original languages, I'm a big fan of like even if it's like in this case, well, I, I, I think like dubbing movies and things like that is silly. Like just watching the original with subtitles. I know with it's subtitles, like, I know. <laughs> it's but like, Parasite, <laughs> you
1: know, they, that's gonna be that was a good kind of moment yeah. for yeah subtitled movies to get a look in. Yeah,
0: the, or like doing movies in the original. Like for example, um, there's this like recent show on Netflix called Barbarians and it's like set in like Roman times but like the Romans actually speak Latin so it's like no way yeah so it's like actually like spoken Latin the
1: whole show
0: well so it's like half so it's about these Germanic tribes fighting the Romans so but like it's in. It's actually made in Germany, so it's they speak German and they're Germanic tribes who wouldn't have spoken like modern like Hochdeutsch, but you know whatever. They're speaking German because they're German actors, and then you have all the Romans played by people who like have insanely good spoken Latin. I think they're all like Italian actors That's so who are, like funny. you know when you pronounce latin in an italian accent it sounds pretty well it's quite
1: fun for them because they don't have any pressure to like then there's no way they're going to offend any ancient romans yeah. you know who are watching it and be like yeah. oh you're no, but I, I thought it was language. very
0: good i mean from my limited expertise i thought it was uh, it was probably the best like spoken latin i've seen in a film or tv show i have not
1: saying. seen any so yeah. the bar would be very low for me but <laughs> yeah. just, that is very impressive yeah
0: so because it just makes it feel more real like it just does like there's this other movie called like I, people hate this movie some people do but it's by Terrence malick who's one of my favorite directors but it's called the new world it's basically pocahontas it is pocahontas it's pocahontas <laughs> okay but they like literally hired a linguist to reconstruct like a native american language for this movie to like that's like not really spoken anymore you're kidding to like and they taught it to the so like for the scenes in, in like parts of it are in english but for the scenes that are in this native american language they like reconstructed you know um Sentences and, and things like that for for the actors to say.
1: That's awesome. Also, that linguist must have just been so excited. <laughs> to oh, have I've that like met,
0: yeah, I've met a couple linguists who's like have been consultants on movies. It seems like the best job ever. So I met the person who worked on Arrival.
1: Oh, okay. I, this is it's so <laughs> funny because as we're having this conversation, I was like, I cannot believe Arrival hasn't come up once yet.
0: Yeah, <laughs> of even course, gonna bring it, it up. Yeah. Yeah. So like oh. the the lady who worked on that as the linguist consultant was so cool. But they yeah. need to
1: make a movie about her because isn't Amy Adams a linguist in the yeah,
0: movie? Yeah, yeah. 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 So she had to like basically like. She got to, like, meet Amy Adams and, like, basically teach her some linguistic stuff. Mostly she'd, like... <laughs> it was funny. She was, like, describing how, like, she had to come into a room and they were, like, yeah, we have a bunch of whiteboards. Can you just, like, fill them up with, like, linguistic stuff? That's so funny. <laughs> to, like, <laughs> have them in the background. <laughs> um, I met the guy who'd made up, like, um, Dothraki and, like, High Valyrian from Game of Thrones. Um, Where are
1: you meeting these people? Is, that this like is a at ling- prin- These circuit. are both at Princeton, yeah. This professional? No,
0: no they, they were like invited speakers. That's, yeah, I love And like, that. you know, they had these like lunches in Prospect House where we were just but like... But now,
1: just looping back to a chat we're having a long, long time ago, but don't you feel like the thesis of Arrival is a little bit, oh, certain languages give you the like cognitive ability so... Yeah,
0: that's where it, I, it lost me. Really? <laughs> but it was cool. It was a cool idea. I was yeah. like, the idea that a language can like somehow help you like... See through time. See through time. Through time. <laughs> I'm like, come on. I, 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 sorry for the spoilers, by the way. Yeah. I mean, it's cool. It's a movie. It's a movie.
1: It, okay, again, spoilers, <laughs> but the movie i loved it i was super into it the yeah. whole time apart from what's that guy like at jeremy ran his line yeah. where he's like oh, oh let's make a baby <laughs> oh, <laughs> that, so a that was, was so random it was so random was so horrible and also when I, I went to go see it in the yeah. movie theaters i'm like everyone just cracked up. oh did up. you see or it at just, the garden theater yeah i did i was hey, there i was there at the same time i
0: remember when everyone cracked everyone
1: up. everyone cracked up myself and because i was like this is the worst like <laughs> the
0: other line was when he's like the best part of this experience wasn't meeting them it was meeting you
1: oh I hate it it's like someone was like oh we got a Hollywoodify this movie yeah, yeah
0: yeah it was but you know the fact that it was like a linguist had such a prominent role in like a Hollywood movie was yeah. was pretty cool no so. that
1: is actually quite a fun yeah because that must be generally quite an under because in all um, it's a meme but in like every single rom-com the character is either works in a magazine without yeah. a fail the character or else is like a baker runs a bakery <laughs> so I feel like that those two jobs get such a look in
0: yeah but you yeah. know well cool all right well we'll have to like watch we'll have to like put together like a list of like okay uh filler on the roof arrival uh the new world so yeah, these are the new totally man. unrelated also, uh, what was the one that you
1: mentioned the one in
0: latin <laughs> oh yeah barbarians. barbarians yeah so these are the recommendations totally unrelated to each other but all sort of loosely linked by the theme of appearing on this episode of the podcast <laughs> That's so um, cool. but yeah well cecily thank you very much thank it's very been much. really fun um hope you can come back on once more before you I should
1: have me. a um you know like an end of season episode where all of your guests come on all oh, at the
0: same time yeah yeah, yeah. that would be <laughs> that would madness. be quite a, i mean you've met a fair number of them honestly uh let's see yeah i mean there were uh, will was there jesse yeah you met them yeah. yeah yeah it's a it's you a, a
1: gang I, back together
0: I, i'm gonna have to like i'm gonna run out of fr- like i don't have that many friends <laughs> you know? i'm gonna run out of people i'm gonna have to start like making new friends <laughs> Yeah, exactly.
1: you're just gonna start like <laughs> hanging around outside pubs spontaneously like, yeah, yeah just exactly. like me
0: hey I want to be on a podcast.
1: Honestly, not a bad... It's like Joe Rogan, but where it's like oh totally random group of people that yeah. i'm meeting but yeah don't like I, yeah i don't, I, don't no I can't get the famous them. a-list
0: people but exactly. i can get the you know I, i've actually tried this I, I asked the person i had just met oh do you want to be on a podcast got rejected it's okay. got rejected <laughs> <laughs> i mean i was just like i had just met this person i was like oh maybe we should I'm like uh, i'm not sure i feel comfortable with that fair enough fair enough sorry sorry yeah just <laughs> <laughs> so you win funny. some you lose some you all right some. well cecily right. thank you very much thank
1: you so much